Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yo, technology, what is it all about? When Mark Andreessen created Netscape, the internet browser that ignited the dot-com boom, the world was a very different place. Just 20 million people were connected to what was more popularly known way back in 1994 as the World Wide Web. It was so primitive that most people had to log on, download their email, and then log off. Continuous connection was a luxury few people had. Today, 23 years on, nearly half the planet is online, and entire industries are being swept aside by the great leveling power of the internet. But that was only chapter one. So what happens next? Where do we go from here? This week on Danny in the Valley, we have brought on none than Mark Andreessen himself to do some future gazing with us. If you can tell what's a cat in a photo, then, by the way, then maybe you can tell what's a tumor in an MRI, right? Better than a person, right? Which, right. of course, would have enormous significance, right, for healthcare. Today, Mark is one of Silicon Valley's most prominent venture capitalists. He's a founding partner of the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, which has invested in more than 150 companies, including Facebook, Airbnb, and Twitter. Mark personally was one of the first investors in Facebook and remains a director on the social media giant's board, as well as a trusted advisor to Mark Zuckerberg. So we cover a lot of ground, uh, from everything from why he told a 22-year-old Zuckerberg way back in 2006 to turn down a blockbuster $1 billion takeover from the giant of the time, Yahoo. We talk about tech's next big targets for disruption and how the internet has evolved beyond all recognition. But before we get to that, two very quick points of housekeeping. Uh, one, a recommendation. Check out the Sunday Times Magazine podcast, which if you haven't already listened to it or subscribed, is very good. And for my listeners, I think you'll find it very interesting this week in particular because the magazine is publishing its special tech issue, which is where my interview with Mark appears as well as loads of other great stuff. So do check that out. And also wanted to give you a heads up. Next week, we have another special guest coming on. I'm not going to say who it is, but I'll give you a hint. He's very excitable, and he's one of the richest men on planet Earth. I think you really dig that. But right now, let's get to Mark Andreessen. I don't know if you ever heard the term store and forward. Nope. Okay, so so <laughs> the way this stuff used to work is you didn't have persistent connections. You would connect to the internet, you would like download your email, and you would log off. And so a lot of people had these kind of partial connections because it was too expensive. At the time, it was too expensive. The telecom charges were so high that it was too expensive to keep a line open all the time. And so, like, people had email like that. But it wasn't really on the Internet and that they couldn't necessarily do anything. Right. Well, so specifically what, what you know, where I, got, where I got lucky was when I went to University of Illinois and I started in 89. So and did my work there from 89 to 93. They had just been funded in the late 80s for uh, to be one of four national supercomputer centers. 
Right, so this is the whole thing Al Gore got in trouble for that actually turned out. Oh, he invented correct. the internet. Well, this is where this is actually where he got in trouble. So this is to, I'll defend Al for a second. Okay. So he never said he invented the internet. He said he created the internet. He participated in the creation of the internet. And the part of that that is true uh, is that he and the Senate sponsored the bills that funded the National Supercomputer Centers, and then the National Supercomputer Centers were the backbone nodes for what was at the time called the NSFNet which was uh. the first thing that you would today say that was the internet, right? That, that was the modern internet was the NSFnet turned into the internet. And specifically, I bring up the supercomputers because the, the whole thing was ec- an economics play um, on the, the, the cost of these supercomputers, which is you'd buy these supercomputers for $20, $30 million. You would literally put them in their own buildings. Like they, they were so big that you would actually build a building for the computer you would not complete the roof, and then you would actually lower the, com- the computer by a crane with in- a crane into the core of the building, and then you right. would finish the roof. Right? That was like that's how big and expensive these things were. And that so, was probably as powerful as what that's an, your, that's an your iPhone, iPhone. An iPhone. That's your iPhone. That's your six hundred dollar iPhone in your pocket. <laughs> is is that today? It's exactly the, it's exactly the same. But by the way, both running Unix. Uh, supercomputers run Unix. Right. Your iPhone runs Unix. Your Unix. Your iPhone literally is a Unix supercomputer that cost thirty million dollars twenty five years ago in, in your pocket. So anyway, so that that was so expensive that they they could only do those in a few universities. But there were scientists all over the country that they wanted to give access to these computers. And so that was the NSF net was National Science Foundation funded the network to so that scientists remotely uh, could access these computers. And so at, at Illinois in like 89, we had like fully modern, we had broadband, we were on the internet backbone, we had broadband, they were wiring up all the dorms, they were wiring up all the libraries, we had graphics workstations, we had, you know, Silicon Graphics made these $50,000 workstations that were equivalent for what you get today on a $200, you know, Chromebook. Right. We had all this stuff and it, it just worked. And then we had these supercomputers and and then we had scientists all over the, the country and the world using these computers. And then the group that I was in was building software to to enable the scientists to more effectively use these remote to use these remote computers and share it. And that is what and eventually rolled into what became Netscape. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so it was one of those funny things because you could see it. William Gibson has this right great line, which is the the future's already here. It's just not widely distributed yet. Um, and so you could see what it was going to be if you were on campus at the University of Illinois. Um, but the assumption that everybody had was when you left campus, that was it. You were done. Like that, that was that was that was this was like an academic. So if you were thing. like University of Kansas, could you have ended up being something entirely different? So actually, it's interesting. Actually, we had a, we had a guy, we had a guy actually on the Netscape founding engineering team from the University of Kansas, um, right. and actually, it's funny. He he actually this is actually a very relevant part of the the story. So he is a guy named Lou Montuli. So he actually had built a um, he had built actually a text based browser um, called Lynx, and so the University of Kansas was on the internet, but with a much slower connection. And so the connection that they were on the internet with, you couldn't do graphical browsing because they didn't have enough bandwidth. And so he actually built a browser so you could browse in like a text or DOS-based interface. And that and that was how, right. like in you know, University of Kansas, like big school, like even there, and at places like that, um, you, you still didn't have what you would consider to be modern, modern access. So maybe, I don't know, two or three million people at the time maybe had what you would consider to be internet access today. And then another, I don't know, 15 million or something on some form of kludgy hacked up right. email thing. Also, it was the numbers, but it was also not even the numbers. It was just the assumption that this was for academics and nerds, military contractors. But this was these these things were not things that you would ever expect ordinary people to do. So, 2017, we're now say three three and a half billion people on yeah, the internet. Think, yeah, everybody has these little supercomputers in their pockets. A, a very large, yeah, about what's it, sixty percent of adults on the globe have a supercomputer in their pocket at this point. On its way to 100%. So is the internet today what you thought it would be then? Oh, it's, I mean, it's leaps and bounds beyond anything that I think anybody imagined. I mean, it's right. way, way beyond. What has been I mean, the- we had a general sense that people would want this, but that, there's a big difference between having that general sense and then seeing what's actually happening today. 
What's been the biggest surprise in terms of the direction it has gone or what it has it has allowed? I mean, well, I mean, it's actually kind of funny how quickly you take these things for granted. So the idea when you were actually uh, when you were a kid, did you ever read the book Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I did. Yeah. Did you ever think that the actual Hitchhiker's Guide would ever actually be a real thing that people would have? No. No. Not only do we have that today, and it's called Google, and it's called Wikipedia, and it's called YouTube, like we have that, but like we have that, and the company that built it, which is basically Google, basically is the, the company that kind of built. You know, in other words, like I want to know something out of Google, I, I, yeah. ask, I ask a question, it gives me the answer, like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, the fact that not only do we have that, but that it's worth like a half trillion dollars, <laughs> it's just relative to what we all thought. I mean, it's just is is just absurd and is amazing. And then the yeah. idea, you know, even even just the idea of Facebook, right? The idea that you would have this, you know, giant network that you. Know, Basically, you'd have this giant. I mean, we all had. You probably, you know, we all had yearbooks in high school. And oh yeah, I still have some. Like, yeah, and like the idea that that would be the foundational idea for what would become another company worth a half trillion dollars that would be connecting together two billion people every day. Like, yeah, it's absurd. And yeah, it is totally absurd. And here we are. And now yeah. everybody's like, oh yeah, of course. Like, you know, absolutely. <laughs> right. So like, and and there's just like, and, you know, we could we could sit here and go for you know dozens and dozens and dozens of these. I mean, the idea of a global bazaar, right? The idea of an eBay, right? Or the idea of an Alibaba. I mean, you, you may remember, I mean, how insane the idea of eBay was the first time people heard about it, right? mm. which is like, I'm going to buy something from somebody I've never met. When eBay first launched, I'm going to go to the post office and buy a money order, which is how you paid in right. the early days of eBay. I'm it was money to, orders. It was money orders. PayPal didn't exist yet. Um, right. And there, you, couldn't, you couldn't do the transactions online. So I'm going to buy a money order. I'm going to mail the money order to this person I've never met. And in return, they're going to mail me back the thing that I bought. Like, seriously? And right today, it's just like, you know, today it's just like this is this is how, you know, modern, you know, the, the, the upgraded version of that is how modern commerce operates to the point where traditional retail is, you know, going through significant challenges to, you know, to adapt to that. So, you know, that that's a complete surprise. Yeah, um, well, it's amazing if you look at what's happening in retail now. The con- economy is growing. Retail, traditional retail is just contracting at an incredible rate. It's just all, you know, you have ghost malls in the UK, you have kind of, high streets that are every other place now is empty Mm -hmm. you kind of wonder well how is this where is this all going and also the the millennial desire and demand for everything i want you know amazon has taught us to expect something the next day so when i when i was a kid when i when i was a kid mail there was a concept called mail order which was the precursor to e-commerce and right you would you would see an infomercial on tv or you would read a classified ad in a magazine and you would order you'd order something and so what you would do is you would mail mail a check um and then it, remember it always at the bottom it always said um you know please wait four to six weeks for delivery was always what it said right and in trade practice it was always six weeks and like six weeks later your thing would arrive and it was always like six weeks like what on earth are people doing with the other five weeks and six days like what, <laughs> what? but like the expectation was just right the expectation was super low and now to exactly your point like that's come exactly uh, 180 degrees around where now it's like well same day is starting to feel lazy right it's like well what's you know amazon amazon's trying to get it down to same hour Right, and 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 by and by the way, right, yeah. fundamental challenge even in e-commerce, right? If you can't get this thing down to an hour or two, right, at some point you you know it's, you, that's when you need drones. The other e-commerce companies, yeah, right, and then literally to the point where like they're going to fly the thing to you from a drone. Yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah. Right. We we have a, we funded a, a a great little a great company that has uh, you know little basically building R two D two little delivery robots, right? And so um, you know the little 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 delivery little navigation bot for the little little bots and well no actually it's a delivery bot. So oh, wow. like the little bot goes down the sidewalk and trundles along because it doesn't need then you don't need to figure out all the air issues you just do it on the sidewalk, right. um, and it just brings you your package or brings you your sandwich or whatever and it's like yeah. 
It's actually funny. That, that, that's actually a funny story. So that company, they originally uh, developed the, the product in, in China. They went to Shenzhen to kind of totally understand the supply chain in China. And so they were prototyping the, the product in China. And so they were, they, were, they were worried. They told us this story. They were worried that people would be freaked out by the idea of like they're walking down the street and there's like a delivery robot like trundling by and like what what on earth is this thing? And so they did all these like candid camera like things where they would basically just take this prototype bot and like run it like through a park. The the footage is hysterical because people are like they kind of turn they they see it and it's kind of trundling along and they see it and they kind of stare at it for a second and you can see the the conflicting look on their face because on the one hand they're like okay that's weird and then on the other hand they're like. But that's probably normal, and I just didn't know about it. And then they're like, "Okay," and then they just go back to what they're doing, right? And so, I mean, I think right. we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna like adapt to that idea actually quite quickly. Is it harder to do your job today than it was when you first started investing? Whenever it was 10, 10 odd years ago, how so? In that the infrastructure now, like during the last crash. You had all these companies promising to change the world, but none of them could because the infrastructure wasn't in place. Well, some of them did. <laughs> some of them, of course. <laughs> of course. Some, oh, some, pardon me. Some, <laughs> some, some of them worked. Um, many didn't, let's say. <laughs> That's true. But now you do have you know, super cheap computing, a supercomputer in your pocket. You have very fast connections and all these you know, Amazon web services and things that allow you to start a company in a way that's it's easier than ever to start a company, which I would imagine means separating the wheat from the chaff is harder. Yeah, so what's happened is the, the basic cost of starting an internet company, it's fallen from maybe 20 million of upfront capital to, I mean, certainly down to at least half a million. And actually we see, we, you see a meaningful number of companies now where they're started on basically no capital. It's basically through, you know, two, three, four people. It's their laptops that they probably already own. And then they have like a hundred dollar bill from Amazon Web Services, and like that's their launch cost. And so, what's the capex? We actually saw one. We actually invested in one company where the entire invested capital in the life of the company had been seven dollars. Seven dollars. Because it turns out you, it still costs seven dollars to buy a domain name. What was that company doing? That's, uh, Imgur. It's actually the company Imgur. Uh, Imgur, which is uh, the uh, image hosting, this huge oh, giant okay. image image hosting and, and uh, image community thing. Uh, it's, this, it's, this, it's this huge thing now. But um, literally, he, his entire invested capital. He started it in his dorm room when he was in college, and he was, he was frustrated because he couldn't figure out how to how to buy a domain name for six dollars. Right? It took a whole it took a whole seven. Oh. Um, <laughs> so so. Um, so so yeah so look it's it's so it's a it's dramatic you know it's it's a dramatic deflation of of, of the entry costs. Um, the consequence of that you know to your question the consequence is just people are just starting a lot more companies right so the the the, the which is a natural consequence right sort of supply and demand. Um, and so uh, the way I would describe that is Dar- Darwin has kicked in right and so basically the way I think about it is every entrepreneurial experiment you can imagine on the internet is being tried. Uh, it's actually funny. It's actually they're they're being tried, and then if they if if they don't work, like some you know a bunch of people will try an idea, like different companies will try an idea, and then if it doesn't work, then like then a bunch of those companies go away or whatever. And then two years later, there's a bunch of new companies that then try the same idea, and they they basically just like come in waves until eventually somebody gets it to work. Um, and so I would just describe it as basically just like a superheated Darwinian environment. From a venture capital standpoint, the super positive part of that is the the we, we benefit from the other side of that, right? Which is the companies many more experiments being run, so many more candidates for companies that could become great venture back companies, and then we we basically get to see this whole kind of Darwinian process play out 
and then obviously we're doing our best to try to. But find that Darwinian out. process plays out that early on in their life. Oh yeah, yeah, in the first year and a half, two years. I mean, well, for the first stage. I mean, there's later. Right. You're still, yeah. you know, you're always you're competing your whole life one way or another. But um, you know that that basic process of figuring out. So and specifically for what we do, the way we think about it, we use this term called product market fit. Yeah. So the, the way we think about it basically is the, the companies fundamentally exist in two have two stages. One is pre product market fit, and that's when they're basically just trying to figure out what to build and whether anybody wants it. And then there's post-product market fit, which is they have a product, they've identified a market for the product, and there's evidence that the market wants the product. Now, there's a whole new set of challenges that happen after product market fit that are the ones that we tend to work with them on. But, you know, the, the motto at Y Combinator is the T-shirts they give out uh, is, uh, you know, build something people want. And on the one hand, that sounds like, you know, duh, obvious. But it's yeah. just, it's really profoundly significant what happens at a company when you go from not knowing whether you have something that people want to going when you, to having something people want. In many ways, the ideal point of investment in venture capital is right when they figured out that they actually have something that people want. And then, so before it takes off. Number one, before it takes off. But number two is just at that point, then there's a whole new level of work that's required to build the company around the product, right? To build the sales force and to build the whole customer, how to actually take care of customers and how to scale globally and how to do marketing. And then there's all these other things, finance and legal and HR and all these other aspects of how you build companies, management, executive team, like all these things. And, that, and that's really where VC, I think, actually becomes highly valuable to these companies. And so if you're in the business of investing post-product market fit, then you want as many experiments being run pre-product market fit as you possibly can. Can we talk about AI? Sure, yeah. So I lived here for 15 years ago, and then I went to Europe, and then I just came back. And in 2000, everybody was a .com. They just put .com on their name and raised a bunch of money. Now people are putting .ai or .io or whatever and raising a bunch of money. Do you think there is a bubble around, quote-unquote, AI, artificial intelligence, and do you subscribe to the idea that this will become the kind of new electricity, that it will just be, it'll be everywhere, and it'll be in all our devices and kind of handle a lot of the tasks that today dumb machines or humans handle? So you may know the history of AI. So AI is an idea that traces all the way back to the invention of the computer. So it traces all the way back to Alan Turing and Claude Shannon and these guys and John von Neumann in the early 40s. There have actually been a series of kind of AI booms um, along the way, sort of the 50s, 60s, 70s. And the, actually, when I went to college, actually, when I went to college, 89, when I got to Illinois, actually, the AI boom of the 80s had just fizzled, um, had just collapsed. And AI actually had been deeply, deeply discredited. If, if you read the media accounts at the time in the mid-80s, it mm. was this AI revolution that was underway. Actually, it's funny. The, the two things that everybody knew for a fact in like 1987 in tech were, number one, AI is the future of everything. And number two is Japan is going to own the entire world. Like, and, and, <laughs> and, and actually, the Japanese actually had a specific project they called fifth generation computing that they were sponsoring that was actually going to develop the AI mainframe that was going to just take over the entire tech industry. And everybody was absolutely freaked out and terrified. And the politicians were going nuts. And, you know, Ross Perot ran for president. Like the whole, you know, everybody was just in a complete frenzy over this stuff. You know, there were sort of interesting kind of things every step of the way, but the promise was never really delivered. Like, it never really quite worked. Because AI back then, what was that, just like a really smart calculator? Well, it, I mean, they were trying to do – so they were trying to do things like – like a big term in the 80s was this thing called expert systems. And so it was kind of this thing of like automated medical diagnosis was something they talked about a lot. And the idea was basically that you would train – basically trying to train computers on how to do common sense. And so it was actually these, they had these huge projects at the time to try to basically like train a computer. Um, you know, they were like teach a computer English, right? And like, you know, teach a computer English um, and be able to, you know, disambiguate all the different weird, you know, the, the words that are spelled the same but sound different in different contexts uh, and all the different metaphors. And they had these giant projects to kind of try to encode all human knowledge and get a computer to do it. And they ne- it never really quite worked. Um, 
And so actually AI actually got deeply discredited as a field. And, and actually when I, when I was in college, AI was like, if you worked on AI, you basically didn't talk about it because you'd get laughed at, right? And so <laughs> like it got really bad, it got really dark. Um, and then actually it stayed dark as a field you know, really through, for sure through the early 2000s, the Google guys came out of the AI group at Stanford and they always believed in it, but they, they and they hired a lot of the people early on to their credit, but um, it was a very, very, um, but there wasn't also, by the way, like there wasn't, it's not like there was a lot of AI in what Google did at the time. It's just these guys kind of thought that it would happen at some point, which which it has. Um, it was still kind of dormant through the 2000s. It was really 2012 when it felt like something changed. Um, and the specific thing that changed uh, was, um, uh, there's a uh, test uh, for testing AI algorithms called ImageNet, which is sort of this industry kind of academic kind of competition that they do. Um, there's actually a computer science professor at Stanford. Uh, yeah, this is a Stanford thing, right? Yeah, Fei-Fei, uh, who's also we've done a lot of work with, um, who kind of organized this whole thing. And so ImageNet is this very interesting um, kind of test, which is uh, computers recognizing what objects and images are and what they're not. Right, and so the the famous version of the test is because it's it's the internet now. It's recognizing cats, right? And so, is it a cat or is it a cinnamon bun, right? And it's like with a human being looks at a photo and it's like, is it a cat or a cinnamon bun? It's obviously a cat. When a computer looks at it, it's like turns out cats and cinnamon buns actually look a lot alike. Um, and so, historically, you know, computers would have I don't know a thirty or forty percent success rate of successful identification of cat versus cinnamon cinnamon bun versus a human. Um, ImageNet, I think. Was it, it actually a cinnamon bun? Or whatever. Okay. I just didn't know <laughs> if there was a, like, okay, we're going to compare it to a cinnamon. Or bun. whatever's in the photo, right? What, whatever's in the photo, right? right? Whatever's in the photo. Or is yeah. it a cat or a ferret? Or is it a cat yeah. or a photo of a cat? You know, right. a poster of a cat on a wall? Or is it, you know, it's all these things where, as a human, you just have kind of the judgment and context to be able to tell these things. As a computer, computers are computers are hyper-literal. And so if they don't, historically at least, if computer the way computers traditionally work is if, if there's anything even a little bit off, right? They just, computers just kind of don't know what to do. In 2012, I think, was when actually computers passed humans in terms of being able to dis- disambiguate, disambiguate objects in photos. Right. And so then you say, well, okay, so it's pretty significant, right? If, if, you can, if you can tell what's a cat in a photo, then, by the way, then maybe you can tell what's a tumor in an MRI, right, better than a person, right, which, right. of course, would have enormous significance, right, for healthcare. Um, or if you can do that, maybe you can detect, uh, maybe you can detect, uh, uh, you know, cancer in a blood biopsy, right, um, to be able to do a whole new kinds of cancer diag- diagnostic because it's the same kind of technology. Um, or maybe you can do, uh, maybe instead of just doing a one-time recognition of a photo, maybe you can actually look at images 30 times a second, and then you can be the, the brain of a, of a self-driving car. And then when a you know, kid walk, runs across the road, you can disambiguate between, oh, it's a kid versus it's a plastic bag that kind of looks like a kid. Right. right. In which case, as a car driving 70 miles an hour, you want to have two totally different responses yes. if it's a kid or a, or a plastic bag. And so all of a sudden, it kind of felt the world kind of turned on its end in computer science. And basically, people were like, oh, now we seem to have figured out it's basically a, a set of algorithms, a, 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 a new way to kind of collect and deal with data, and then just raw computing horsepower has advanced so much. And so it's some combination of those three things uh, really changed. And that, that unlocked what has become this kind of current frenzy um, around AI. And so we're, we're seeing a, a flood of, I mean, basically a huge number of companies kind of to your point coming through here. AI applied to let's figure out a better way to do risk scoring for pro- pro- providing credit um, or for doing ins- you know insurance. Um, let's use AI to try to find out a way to um, gather you know uh, heartbeat data off an Apple Watch and be able to see if we can maybe predict heart attacks before they happen. Um, let's figure out if for the cancer biopsy. Let's figure out if we can actually do genomic sequencing of traces of tumors in blood and then actually use machine learning to uh, go in and figure out if somebody actually has cancer and what the state of the cancer is. Self-driving cars, um, self-flying drones, right? Um, the delivery drones, like they mm. want to be able to fly themselves. Um, so you don't so, think this will be another expert systems 
crash. So this is what is so entertaining about the current public debate uh, over AI, um, which is you basically have... Elon Musk says we're going to be killed by smart... Yes. A fleet of smart robots who are very mean. So Elon and Bill Gates and Stephen Hawking are all in a complete panic because they think that this technology now works so well and it's going to hyper-accelerate and these things are going to wake up and be evil and kill us all or take all our jobs or whatever the hell it is. Like, it's just all going to be terrible. But it's going to be a consequence of the technology working so well, right? Whereas all the actual AI people are like, Shit! I hope we could deliver on it this time. Like, <laughs> right? I'm hoping for the robot apocalypse. I'm hope well, I, and I'm hoping to not be humiliated, embarrassed by a complete collapse of the field again. Right. Right. And so they're all just based. And, and by the way, it's actually really funny. They actually get really mad. They're they're not super outgoing people, and so they don't talk as much in public as Elon does. But they get super frustrated at what Elon's doing, both because they just think he's wrong because they think he just doesn't know what he's talking about. But they also get frustrated because he's setting the expectations for what they're expected to be to deliver so high. Well, I think it's also are, odd because it is not them. his car. Yes. Well, I, I call that his, a smart yeah. robot. Yeah. An AI powered yeah. robot. Well, I suggested to him on Twitter that he name it the uh, AI murder machine. Um, <laughs> How did he take the, that? The road murder machine. Uh, he <laughs> he uh, he deleted the entire conversation. Um, yeah, he didn't like that one as much as some of my other suggestions. Um, yeah, no, he is. Yeah, no, it's actually really funny. He's trying to hire. He's trying to hire as many AI experts as he can to literally build AI. Well, he's actually, and he's funding uh, this thing, OpenAI. Yes, this whole institute, this research institute, to to to, to build AI. So it's kind of though a sign of the times, right? Which is sort of there. There's kind of two fundamental critiques of tech right now, right? One is it's all just completely worthless and stupid, right? And it's a bubble, and it's all just you know these kids. App just after, app after, app, app after app after app after app after like whatever, whatever, whatever. It's a bunch of it's a joke, right? It's a bubble and it's going to crash. And the other fear is, oh my God, it's going to take over everything. Like it's going to work so well that it's going to comprehensively cause mass unemployment and murderous computers and everything else right and, and they're both mor- they're both moral panics right they're both they're both right. just extreme emotional reactions to change and then the actual engineers are like you know they're just like show up to work every day try to get something to work right like they're just trying to make autocorrect <laughs> on the phone work a little bit better <laughs> i'll so, tell you it's it's autocorrect is the bane of my existence yeah 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 so i always tell elon is like yeah wait yeah i'm gonna get super i'm I'll, i'm gonna get super panicked about ai the minute autocorrect actually works properly <laughs> i saw a great there's a great photo that just went viral on the internet yesterday the deep mind guys at google yeah uh, who do the the go and everybody's yeah. worried about go it's, it's going to extrapolate out into all this stuff there's a great photo of like those guys trying to present at a conference and they couldn't get the projector to work right <laughs> <laughs> they're, all, they're all standing around the laptop like so that's brilliant here here in the real world yeah, yeah. We're, we're still trying to make so you don't think we're all going to need to be uh put onto a universal basic income because we're all going to be out of work no. and having to no. fill our time by writing poetry rather than working factories etc no. no not even a little bit not even a little bit no because that's another thing is like universal basic income people right. are getting very excited about this idea yeah Especially around here, yeah. But it seems like this. Maybe this is just a kind of a science experiment that people are just, you know, it's a it's a theoretical extrapolation of where we are today. Back to your point. Yeah, or you might call it a fake problem, um, <laughs> <laughs> same, or a fake problem, or a fake problem. In the same analogy as fake news. So, but there is there is genuine public concern for a lot of people who think about this stuff that we are going to be put out of work by an army of smart machines. Yeah. So it's 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 Luddites. It's the Luddite fallacy. So it's the time honored it basically it's it's the it's literally it's the Luddite fallacy and it ba- it basically is the Luddite panic and it basically recurs about every 50 years. If you look historically there's a new wave of panic. So there's a huge wave of panic around this when computers came out in the 50s and 60s and if you go back and read the accounts at the time it's just like automation oh my god. Like it's just this is this is all going to be absolutely horrible. And of course what's happened in the intervening 50 years is the number of jobs in the world are you know way up the number of jobs in the world have skyrocketed since then. The amount of income in the world has skyrocketed since then. 
And then it's even weird to think about what's actually happening in current events in the U.S. today, right, which is what we're actually doing is we're sitting here. Actually, the jobs numbers just came out this morning. Unemployment is at a 20-year low in the U.S. It's actually funny, to watch the press coverage on this. So the press coverage on this, right, after 2008, the press coverage was, oh, the misery of unemployment, which, by the way, very valid story. Mm. It, it, unemployment is a terrible thing. So story after story after story of all these of all these people who, who, who can't get jobs. And, and then, of course, what happens? The economy recovers, and there's been a huge surge of hiring over the last eight years. Now we're running at 20 year, a 20-year low in unemployment. The stories immediately flip to, oh, my God, now look at the horror of all these producers who now can't hire the people. Right. And so the New York Times. Talent shortage. Big, what's that? Talent, talent, shortage. talent shortage. Right. And it's like the, and the, the stories literally went from, oh, my God, job shortage to, oh, my God, ch- a talent shortage in one step. Right. There was never the story. There was never the story of, you know, actually, we kind of have the right number of workers for the right number of jobs like that. That, that story, for some reason, I don't know. Probably that's is, really boring. It's probably hung that's up in editing, is my guess. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 That would get left on the cutting room. I guess they're probably still trying to find the right photo to put to put about, to put to put to put about probably have a cinnamon bun. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. So, um, so th- there is there is no tr- there is no trace of any of this anywhere in the economy. We we have the, we have this problem right now. We have, we actually don't have enough workers. Like is is the actual problem that we have. Um, and then this also goes to the way to think about the impact of technology more generally on the economy, which is um, economists have a way of actually measuring the rate of productivity, uh, the rate of technological change in the economy, and it's called productivity growth. And it's something that economists track very carefully. To the extent that you believe that there is some sort of sudden surge in technology innovation that's going to cause massive upheavals in the economy, what you would, the number that you would see that in is in productivity growth. And so from the narrative, you would expect productivity growth to be running at these generational highs. What's actually the case is productivity growth is actually generational lows. We're actually – the Productivity growth. Productivity growth is actually at generational lows. Productivity growth right now is running – it's like 1.5% a year or something. Right, which is like that sounds very unexciting. Very unexciting. Contrasted, by the way, productivity growth in the 50s, 60s, 70s was like three percent, four percent a year, and now it's like at one one and a half percent a year. And so, with the the actual observed data throughout the entire developed world is actually the that actually the rate of technological progress in society, it, in in ways that would actually reflect into things like income and in, 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 into uh, joblessness or job loss, is actually much lower. By the way, that's uh, so much more boring than to, oh my god, we're all going to be replaced by is. machines. It is. It is. It is. It's it's much more boring. By the way. Another thing people don't. Another thing. Another thing's very interesting. So, um, the like the jobs. If you look at the jobs numbers today, the jobs numbers are always reported in net gains or ads, right? Which is one, one way to think about it because you're thinking relative to the population of workers. Underneath the net gain and ad are two gross numbers: um, gross job creation in the period, and then gross job destruction in the period. And the gross numbers are much higher than the net numbers because the, the economy changes a lot under normal circumstances. What's interesting is the rate of both job creation and job destruction in the economy over the last forty years has been falling. The actual rate of structural transformation in the economy is slowing, not rising. By the way, another misperception people have is people are changing jobs more often. That also turns out not to be true. The rate of job change as measured at the level of the individual is slowing as well. Um, and so, so how does the gig economy fit into that? Um, very much. I mean, in terms of these trends, very much on the margin. It's not a big contributor to either one of these things in either direction. It's a new kind of employment option that some people are choosing to do either in addition to a job or they're putting together you know, a set of these jobs. Like one could argue the gig economy should cause these numbers to increase. At least in the data so far, as observed, you can't see that impact. What the numbers show you is economic change is slowing, not, not, not accelerating. The world is revolutionizing before us, but what you're saying is all the numbers are quite pedestrian right. and boring. So here's what I think is happening, because everything we've talked about so far is the economy, right, mm. as if it's one thing. And actually, I think what the, the important thing actually is it's not one thing. It's actually multiple things. 
Specifically, the way I think about it is there are now two different kinds of economic sectors. There are two different industries or businesses that you can think about. There are certain sectors where the technological change actually is happening very fast, right? And we could identify a bunch of those. The media, uh, the news the news and media business generally changes happening very fast. Retail changes now happening very fast. Uh, consumer electronics, right? If you just like look at what happens like to the pricing capability of television sets, like it's just dramatic right. what's happening, right? And TV producers go out of business and like all kinds of crazy stuff happens. So like those are three examples of very rapid changing sectors. So by the way, good news, high productivity growth in those sectors. Good news, bad news. In the media? Yeah, 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 yeah. Really? Media productivity has exploded. Okay. This podcast is going to go, you're, you're going to put this podcast online and it's going to go to... How many people? Millions. Millions of millions, people. Millions and millions, millions of people. And, and how much? And, and how much is it going to cost to distribute this podcast to millions and millions? Of I don't people? know. What is your? What is an hour of your time worth? No, not. <laughs> but like, yes. Yeah. But in all seriousness, like, what's the I'm, distribution? Is nothing. I'm not. Yeah. Char- I'm not charging for this. Although no. we, we, could, we could we could renegotiate <laughs> that if you would like. But like, what is it? Was it? What does it cost to distribute audio to you know 20 million people today? I mean, it's you don't. We don't even know because it's so small. It's a rounding right. error. It's like, what does it cost to have the lights turned on? Right. I mean, light used to be expensive. Now light's super cheap. Broadcasting yeah. audio to 20 million people used to be expensive. Now it's cheap. So productivity growth in the media industry has exploded. Right. And that's causing all kinds of changes. I mean, mm. so there's many new media businesses that are on fire and growing very fast and hiring people. And then there's lots of old media companies that are restructuring and doing layoffs and all these other things. And so that, that's what you'd expect to see in a sector with rapid productivity growth. And then in the sectors of rapid productivity growth, the other thing you have is the prices are collapsing, right? Which, which is what you get. The whole point of technology is to do more with less. And so, and then things naturally get cheaper over time. So the price of TVs is collapsing. The price of media is collapsing, right? The price of news has collapsed, which is why the news, news companies are, are having such dramatic circumstances. Mm. Um, you know, retail prices are collapsing. You know, the, the Walmart effect followed by the Amazon effect, right? is causing retail prices to fall. Of course, retail prices falling is great news if you're a consumer, right? Because you're now able to buy more with your dollar. Um, but it's a real fundamental challenge to the producers that are on the wrong side of the of, of the cost curve. Okay, so there's there's those sectors. Then there's the other sectors. Um, then there are the sectors where there is no productivity growth or maybe even negative productivity growth. And those are sectors called healthcare, uh, education, by the way, construction, government, uh, government, government and law generally, um, and then personal services. Um, and just think as two examples there: uh, childcare and, and elder care, uh, both big growth industries. So in those sectors, the opposite is happening. There is basically no productivity growth to speak of. There, to the extent technology is getting involved, it's just not moving the needle on the economics really in any significant way, right? And so in those sectors, you see the exact opposite set of effects. You see steadily escalating costs. You see steadily escalating prices, right? And this is why college keeps getting you know 10, 15 percent more expensive every year. So I help. It's the whole. Or, this is the whole basis of the healthcare debate in the U.S. Healthcare now has inflated to a, it's now a sixth of the economy, right? It's now 18 percent of the yeah. economy, and nobody wants to pay for it. But but is the consequence of like massive rise in costs, right? In those sectors, you have the opposite effect happening. Good news, by the way, good news from a job standpoint, congratulations. Like you want to you want to fully employ everybody in the economy that we're all going to be employed in these slow productivity growth sectors, right? We're all going to end up being in education, healthcare, because these sectors just just need huge numbers of people because there's no productivity growth. So if, um, for all these journalists going out of jobs, could they go take care of old people? 
Well, it's, it's, <laughs> well, but there are many others. I mean, look, in, in yeah. all seriousness, like yeah. I'll give you an example. Pittsburgh people. Pittsburgh is a is a is a great uh, actually example of what's happened, which is like Pittsburgh was like an icon of like old world industrial yeah. revolution. The Steelers. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing, steel. The whole thing. Yeah. Pittsburgh today is an absolutely thriving hub of healthcare and education. Right. It is like ground zero for a tremendous mm. amount of innovation in both of those fields, and like job growth in Pittsburgh is exploding. And so, as as a regional example, it's actually right. this kind of transformation playing out. By the way, incomes are way up. Like quality of life is way up. Like all, all kinds of things have improved. So, so that kind of broad-based transformation is happening. But then think about the price impact of what happens then. So in the fast productivity growth sectors, prices are collapsing. In the slow productivity growth sectors, prices are skyrocketing. So think of what happens is the low productivity growth sectors are going to eat the entire economy. Right, because the price of everything where tech is having an impact are on their way to it's zero. It's coming down. The price of everything where tech isn't having an impact, the prices are going to infinity, and so the economy is rotating away from the sectors. Just in terms of overall numbers, the economy is rotating away from the sectors where tech's having a big impact, and rotating into the sectors where tech is not having a big impact. So then you could say well, tech will follow that great rotation. Well, we're trying. The problem is that the sectors that have low productivity growth don't just have low productivity growth for no reason. They have low productivity growth for a very specific reason, which is they're incredibly highly regulated. You get this anytime you talk to a founder operating in healthcare education, which is like if, if, if I want to launch a tech startup and I want to go into e-commerce or I want to go into media, like I just do it. If I have a startup and I want to go to healthcare education, like my – Different thing. Yeah, the fun just starts at the point where you develop the product because you've got this incredibly complex nest of regulations, government involvement in these sectors. You've got regulatory capture by the incumbents in the sectors. By the way, you have like in, in, in healthcare, you have this other thing. You have this indirect relationship between the customer and the payer, mm. right, where the customer of the healthcare is not the same person who pays the bills, right? And then the government is deeply involved in the economics of how that works. And so these other sectors, it's not that they're impossible for tech to have a big impact. They're much more difficult for tech to have a big impact. And this is a big thing that's happening in the Valley right now, and we're we're an example of this, is there's a, a lot of VCs and entrepreneurs that are now trying to figure out okay, we need to now go have a bigger impact on education or on healthcare or on construction or on government and law. And I would say, like, we're optimistic, <laughs> but, like, it, it's a daunting challenge. But now, the amount of money is gigantic, right? Yeah. Healthcare is a sixth economy. It's a much bigger sector than most of the sectors that we get involved in. And so if you get your, you know, God-given whatever share of that through technological innovation, like, there's a huge pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But it's extremely difficult to do it. And I think this, but this is the thing. This is the conundrum at the heart of it, which is, so, so I would argue, is coming from this, like the logical conclusion to me is the problem in today's economy is not that we have too much technological change. The problem by far is that we don't have enough. Right. Because if we had more technological change in healthcare and education, construction, government, law, then we could get falling prices in those sectors instead of rising prices in those sectors. And all of us as consumers, everybody who buys any of this stuff, including you know, directly or indirectly through uh, paying taxes – uh, you know, through taxation and government spending, because what's the alternative, right? Right. Left unchecked, healthcare is going to go from being a th- sixth economy to a, to half. a fifth, to a fourth, you yeah. know, to a third, to a half. Like, yeah. there's no limit on yeah, and to infinity and the beyond, scope of this problem, so right? Exactly. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's what we want, but I, I think we should aspire to more than that. Yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Going back to like the big tech companies, I mean, one of the reasons I was sent out here from London is that the five biggest companies in the world, or in the West anyway, are on the West Coast. <laughs> they are soaking up all of this value from all of these industries that they are disrupting and prices are going down. But are they becoming too powerful? The read on the Valley from the outside is that we're very smug on this concept of dis- disruption um, because the, the, the sort of external view of the Valley is like we're a bunch of kids. We think we can just like walk into any, any industry and launch these disruptive models Correct. and like not have to yeah. worry about the consequences. The number one industry that we try to disrupt is our own industry. Eight out of ten times we're not sitting there saying let's go screw up, you know, I don't know, the car industry or something. Eight out of ten times we're saying let's go try to screw up Oracle. Right. Let's go screw up like, you know, one of these big, you know, one of these big incumbents. Like, let's go try to take, let's go try, let's go try to take on Google. Let's go try to take on Amazon. Let's go try to take on Apple. And so a huge amount of actually what happens in the Valley, you know, viewed from the outside is sort of, is sort of much more, I would say, I don't know, incestuous, insular, yeah. intramural, we call it intramural sport. Intramural. Intramural, intramural sport, right. Yeah. Is, is basically, because they're, because they're right here. We see them. We know them. We understand them. The minute they get vulnerable in some way, everybody figures it out. We all know these business models inside out. Many of us participated in building them. Yeah. Um, and so the level of internal attack, the, the amount of energy in the Valley devoted to attacking our our champions is much higher than even the level of effort in the Valley uh, uh, devoted to trying to build businesses in, right. these, other, in these other But things have become so, tech has become so pervasive that you can't help but disrupt these other industries. Well, and, and by the way, there's good and valid reasons to try to do that mm. and, and, you know, in things like healthcare and education. But my, my point is just that all of the, whatever you think of the big tech incumbents is not that the entrepreneurial ecosystem of the Valley is saying, oh yeah, they're great, they're our champions, we should let them go on to become very successful. It's the opposite. We get we get entrepreneurs in here every single day. We're just like, you know, yeah, um, I'm going to go take down Larry Page. Now, right, most of them won't be able to do it, right? Um, but yeah. by the way, you know, Larry Page was that guy once upon a time, yeah. you know, with an idea to taking down Yahoo, and he pulled it off, right? And so, yeah. you know, it happens. Speaking of Yahoo, yeah. right? I think it's 11 years ago. Yahoo tried to buy Facebook, right, for like a billion dollars. I, I only know what I've read in the in the, uh, in the newspaper. <laughs> oh, I read that you told <laughs> no, Mark no. And I was just wondering, did you see then what we see now? Uh, you know, again, it's hard to say that you can see. Maybe he, maybe he had these expectations all along. I mean, it's been so successful, which is a huge credit to those folks, you know, who worked there and built the company. So, I mean, at that stage, it's not so much you're closing your eyes and you're imagining that it's going to be what it is today because that's that's hard to do. It's more just it's more in a, in a in a case like that. It's more just looking at like what what's the sort of vector of improvement happening at that point. Like you can tell when these companies, like you can tell when these companies. 
sort of think about it as almost like uh, growing strategic value. Like some of it's in the numbers, some of it's like number of users or amount of, amount of revenue or whatever, but part of it's just you can feel it if you're up close right? and if you see enough of these. And it's just basically, so basically what happens is these companies are basically either in a po- positive spiral or a negative spiral at any point in time. And and the spiral is kind of comprehensive. It's kind of, the spiral is everything kind of all at the same time. So it's who are you recruiting? Who are you retaining or not retaining from your current employee base? Um, what's your morale? Um, what do your customers think of you? How good are your products? What is the press writing about you? It, all these things, what, what do investors think about you? They're, it's all kind of the same thing because it all kind of keys off of each other. And so these companies generally, they're either gaining strength kind mm. of in everything all at once or they're losing strength in everything all at once. And by the way, they it changes. Like sometimes yeah. they shoot way up and then collapse. Sometimes they go in negative spiral and then, you know, Apple, they recover and they come out the other side and go. So they do go back and forth. But at any given point in time, you can kind of tell which way they're headed. Generally speaking, if a company is gaining strength, generally speaking at that stage, selling it is a bad idea, right? Because of the multi- right. multiplicative effect of just, if it just keeps going for two, three, four more years, the compounding, right? It's compound interest, right? The compounding will create a lot more value than any buyer would be willing to pay. Right. Um, you know, contra that, if you have a company that's in that negative spiral, it's probably a good idea to sell it, you know, kind of at the first available chance because, yeah. you know, odds are it's going to keep spiraling. And so it was, I guess it was more of that. It was just, it was doing Didn't feel so right. well. Yeah, no, yeah, it was just, it was improving. And by the way, there are all of these companies, 100% of the time, there's, there are always problems. Like, yeah, of course. Right? It's, it's like there's always chaos. Like the amount of, it's the sausage factory metaphor, right? The, 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 everybody likes sausage. Nobody wants to see how it gets made. Yeah. In these companies, always, every, no matter how well they're doing internally, there's always some level of stuff happening where you're just like, want to pull your hair out. You're just yeah. like horrified and like, oh my God, I can't believe this person's doing that and this and that. And my God, look at this new competitor coming at me and I can't believe we just lost this engineer. And it's just a nonstop, you know, it feels like just this cascade of just horrible things happening. Yeah. But you just have, you have to be able to put that in context with the overall trend. And then the other thing is the, the, the big, the big macro things that people worry about tend not to be the things that cause huge damage, right? When, when these companies don't work, it's almost never somebody, you know, Google quashes you or whatever it is. It's almost always you, you shoot something up. Internally. You shoot yourself in the foot. You shoot yourself in the foot, right? It's it's as they say, it's suicide, not homicide. Right um, is the old uh, is the old venture <laughs> line. Um, and I've just found that you know it's like ninety nine out of hundred times that's the case. And so right. time spent worrying about these big macro things is almost entirely a waste of time. Contra that, the next hour spent worrying about your internal operations and how good you are at actually running your company like that, that has very high payoff. Right. And, and Mark was very serious at that stage and is today about running a great company. Are you worried about screen time for your child or yeah, children no. generally? No, not even a little bit. Why? So it's so uh, there's a great book. There's a great book. So Stephen Johnson wrote a, Stephen Johnson, the science writer, who's brilliant, wrote a, mm-hmm. a book a couple years ago called Everything Bad is Good for You. It's a great book. So he goes through the history. There's a history to this. So basically, every new form of media that's come out in the last thousand years, uh, basically there was a moral moral panic, and there were basically people who were like, "Oh my God, this is going to ruin everything. This is going to ruin kids. Like this, it's always it's always going to ruin the kids, right?" And so like Socrates, it started with Socrates. Actually, Socrates hated uh, writing, um, right? Because all of all of Western civilization up to that point was oral tradition, right? Yeah. And so Socrates is says that said that it, it, the idea of you write this stuff down, you lose the you lose the magic, you lose the the effect, and so therefore like Western civilization is all downhill with the invention of the written word. <laughs> I mean, obviously people hated the introduction of the book. Which led to the Reformation, right? Which was the collapse of Western civilization. Right. Catholic Church was, let's just say, not a fan. Yeah. The novel was viciously attacked for diverting an entire generation of kids away from reading the classics. Um, you know, popular music, jazz was the music of the devil and was going to corrupt an entire generation of kids in the 20s. You know, when I was a kid, TV was rotting our minds. 
Like my whole generation was slackers, right? TV was running yeah, our minds. We were all yeah. going to be useless. Heavy metal music was going to make us Satanists. D&D <laughs> was going to turn us into cult murderers. It's just nonstop. It's right. just, and it literally the book, literally his book goes through in detail the entire history of this. And it always comes out the other end and it's actually like, eh, actually those are all pretty good ideas. Like right. the culture is actually, I think, better because we have the written word and we have novels and we have jazz music like actually turned out to be okay. Yeah. And even yeah. heavy metal is kind of okay. Um, and so it's, this is just more of same. If you're looking at the internet as a football game, 90 minute football match, what minute are we in? Which, which, <laughs> which soccer or football, American football, 60 minutes. We'll see in, in our version of the game, actually people score. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I'm, I'm on both sides of it. So we, I can argue either way. We, the idea of a really exciting game where the final score is zero, zero. Like we don't, I have seen a we, very we exciting zero, zero, have, nil, nil game. There, there you go. Yeah. We, we don't have those over here. Uh, sorry. What was the question again? What minute of the game are we in, in terms of the evolution? And Oh, so it's, so by any measure, we're still at the very beginning just because the, the, the cycling, so the, the combinations, um, Matt Ridley actually wrote a great book on this topic um, mm. where basically it's, it's, it's ideas combining, which is where all the actual progress happens. And so the more ideas there are in the world today, the more ideas there will be in the world in the future because of how they combine. Right. Um, and so and, – and, and actually, by the way, this is the big unappreciated, I think, effect of the internet in the long run. This is the thing that people are just not tracking closely enough, which is the internet is the best platform anybody's ever come up with to be able to uncover and combine ideas. And, and that's true, right, in all areas of human activity, all the way from science, all the way through to culture and everything else. Um, and so the rate of improvement of basically everything that we can possibly think about, it's, it's all going to, I mean, notwithstanding our productivity growth discussion we had before, but in general, the, the, right. the growth of ideas is going to accelerate from here. So we're like minute five. Oh, yeah, very, very early. Yeah, for sure. And that is all for another edition of Danny in the Valley. A very big thank you to Mark, who has convinced me to just stop worrying and love the internet. What you can do, of course, is to stop at Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review. It really does help, so please uh, take a moment and do that. And you can, of course, always find me every Sunday in the Sunday Times online at thetimes.co.uk. And on Twitter, at Danny Fortson. Until next week, thank you and bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.